Scott Stevens tries to clear it out, but it's kept in now by Quinn. Honeyworth back to Quinn, cuts to the net, he scores! I don't know how Quinn found a spot to shoot that puck past Malarchuk, but he got it past him and just tagged the corner of the net. The game is tied at one. All the talk is about Lemieux, all the talk is about coffee, but people forget what kind of offensive threat Dan Quinn is. And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boland. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This is the classic hockey show for classic hockey fans. We celebrate the history of the game with stories told by the select few who actually lived it. Get ready for an all-access pass to the heart of the hockey universe. Episode 49 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features 14-year NHL veteran and celebrity golf legend Dan Quinn. Dan was drafted 13th overall by the Calgary Flames in 1983, and he made his debut with Calgary halfway through the next season, scoring 52 points in 54 games and adding 8 more points in the playoffs in just 8 games. He really hit his stride in 85-86 as he led the Flames in scoring with 72 points and recorded 15 points in 18 playoff games as the Flames advanced to the Stanley Cup Finals before succumbing to the Montreal Canadiens. In 1986, he was traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins in exchange for Mike Bullard. And it was in the Steel City where Quinn would have his most individual success as he scored a career-high 40 goals in 87-88 and a career-high 94 points the next season on a high-flying Penguins team that also featured the likes of Mario Lemieux and Paul Coffey. Despite his success in 1990, he was traded to the Vancouver Canucks, where he was named team captain. But he admits that his dedication to the game was less than optimal while with Vancouver. Dan had numerous other productive but brief NHL stops in Ottawa, LA, Philadelphia, and St. Louis. After retiring from hockey in 1996, Dan continued to compete at the American Century Celebrity Golf Classic, an annual competition to determine the best golfers among American sports and entertainment celebrities. He won the tournament in 1992, 2001, 2002, 2004, and 2012, and had a total of 18 top 10 finishes. Dan is articulate, honest, and insightful, and you'll enjoy reliving his NHL journey with interesting recollections about teammates and coaches, including Joe Mullen, Wayne Gretzky, Al McGinnis, Mary Lemieux, Paul Coffey, Kent Nilsson, Badger Bob Johnson, and many more. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Dan Quinn. We're back on the show, and we are thrilled to have a veteran of 14 NHL seasons, 885 games, piled up 685 points in that time period. Also went on to uh, enjoy a great career, post-career, as a uh, professional golfer, Dan Quinn. Dan, thanks so much for being with us today. Mark, thank you. My pleasure. Dan, I wanted to start out uh, as as a kid. You had a very unique experience in that you had a father 
who played professional sports, played in the CFL for the Ottawa Rough Riders. Uh, do you remember him playing? Or were you old enough to remember him playing? And what was that experience like having a pro athlete as a dad? So, um, no, so my father played uh, after uh, college, or he went to Canadian college or Queen's University. We played a little hockey and a little golf, or a little football, I should say, at, at Queen's, and then played for the Rough Riders for about three years. But uh, the money was once my mom... Uh, was pregnant with me, he had to quit. <laughs> so it was, he had to get a real job. Right. He had to get a real job. So, uh, but to come uh, coming back to your to where I did get some experience, I was you know, born and raised in Ottawa until we moved to London, Ontario, and Canada when I was 12. I got to uh, definitely go down as a, uh, I was on the sideline a bunch, water boy for a bunch of games. Uh, I can remember vividly still some of those moments and some of the players from Tony gave me, wouldn't know them, but, you know, CFL was pretty big for us pre you know, DirecTV and the mass markets for the NFL. CFL was pretty big for us Canadian kids growing up. Right. And we I would only have access to the CFL when guys would jump over to the NFL over the years. Or like guys like Johnny. Well, so like, you know, yeah, like Tom, Tom, uh, Tom, I think it's Tom Clement and uh, Conrad Holloway. And this is back like the Warren Moon era. They kind of come up there. But some of those guys, I mean, Conrad Holloway was the quarterback for Ottawa, a little too small for the NFL. But. I can remember some names. I mean, and I'm talking about 72, 73. So just a little to your point, the experiences that kids uh, get sometimes, they, they last for a long time. Um, but it's um, it was definitely more of that back then than I think there is ongoing now. There's not. I, although I did see some guys on the off, like linemen transfer from the CFL up to some spots in the NFL this year. Right. You obviously grew up in an athletic family where, where golf was also a part of the – uh, sports activity. I'm assuming with your your father and your grandfather. I thought you mentioned at one point I read somewhere. So uh, you kind of got some great. In addition to being able to be on the, the sidelines of the Canadian Football League, you also had a chance to do some some good things uh, golf wise as a very young person playing some some big tournaments. And um, eventually, you have to make a decision to, uh, about hockey as a young person. But talk a little bit about the influence of golf and your your family's involvement as a young age, a young kid. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I think when I was 10 or 11, my grandfather got me my first set, you know, mixed bag. Of club. It was a brand new set of, you know, three, five, seven, nine iron type deal. And, uh, but you know, it's a, just a long story, but, uh, to be honest, we moved to the town to London, Ontario in, in when I was 12 and they had the most, uh, I had the most amazing life there. I always played a lot of sports. So I say that to all this one sport parent to these kids at, you know, at that age, I was still playing some, some little league and, um, kind of got away from that quickly. I fell out of it, but you know, fell in love with golf. So I did golf all summer and then hockey all winter, never, never hockey in the summer, but we moved to London, Ontario when I was 12 and there was a, a nine hole, like par 32 executive kind of thing attached to a, a course called Thames Valley. And it was public and for basically two, two to four bucks, depending on if it was a weekday or a weekend, you could go play all day. And nice. I, once I was like 13, I was able to ride my bike with my clubs on the, on my shoulder and, and uh, it was about a five mile ride with a big hill coming home. Going down wasn't too bad it was down <laughs> on the river, but uh, I ended up, you know, Marcus, where I did all summers, you know, it was, I, I ended up working at the course so I could play for free. I ended up working in the shop. I worked on a golf course one summer. And um, as you know, if, if anybody knows Canada is probably, I think it's the largest per capita population with, you know, 40% of the population has a handicap. So it's a very big sport for the short season that we do get. Right. Um, and they love, their, they love their golf. Now we've got a, 
I, I teared up yesterday. From, I'm from Ottawa. There's a little girl named Brooke Henderson, if you follow sports at all. Uh, small little town of Smith Falls, 5,000 people, little tiny golf course, and this girl's one of the best in the world. And she, she just defended her title at the Canadian Women's Open yesterday. So, yeah, it's a huge, huge golfing community up there um, and a great one, to be honest with you. Well, running along concurrent to your uh, success in golf, obviously, you are finding excellent success as a youth player uh, in the sport of hockey. And eventually, you become the first ever pick of the Belleville Bulls. We're jumping ahead a little bit here, but you go to the Ontario League. Uh, new team, expansion team, Belleville Bulls. Uh, was that something that you know, you've been, I'm assuming you've been scouted heavily prior to that. And when did you realize that uh, you had a future as a hockey player? Well, I paid very little attention to that. I try to, you know, I know all these parents now don't, they're all worried about their kids. Around. I did play, I paid zero attention. In fact, so to your, to my, my whole sport thing, that's 13, 14, I got involved in the summer. I would turn 15. I played a lot of high level amateur tournaments and actually had two introductory level uh, letters to go play college golf and you know so it was kind of crazy but then uh play junior b with men and, and next thing you know you're saying well i'm not i'm better than like 19 year olds and then you're playing major a at 16 uh i think somewhere in there you know i knew i got ranked and i was going to get drafted uh in a high place and then i ended up being first overall to to the bulls and, and that was a big step i was a very thin young man and uh young kid um and it was a barbaric league back then right. so it was a big step and it was a uh, try not to get killed and whatnot <laughs> but that summer that summer I, I mean i think i scored 19 to 20 goals and felt um i don't know it just was a it was a it wasn't the best year i had a lot of good games you know i had a couple of good hatchet games but i had a lot of bad stretches when I didn't really learn how to, you know, train or eat or hydrate or all the stuff. And that summer I went home and worked out, had a little growth spurt and came back. And I think, uh, I don't know if I was second in the league in scoring at, at that next year, which led to my you know, first round pick to the Cavs the following year. But right. in those couple of years, yeah, it was, it was, it would all happen fast. Next thing you know, I'm, I go to camp, they send me home. Next thing you know, I'm, I got 52 points in 54 games as a rookie in the NHL at 18. So it went uh, I'd always say to some people, probably too fast. You know, you take a lot of shortcuts in your development, um, not only in, on the ice, but off the ice and as a person. Um, but it is what it is. It's just the way it was done back then. And, uh, you know, you know, I think a 21 team league, they no European. So skilled players, uh, post Wayne Gretzky's, uh, um, dominance of the league in the early eighties, it led to everybody wanting to have a player similar to Wayne and, so frail, skinny guys like myself, Pat LaFontaine's and Eisenman's became, well, Steve became more of a complete player, but I shouldn't say him, but a lot of skilled guys like myself started to get, get good looks in the NHL, and and uh, that's where it all started. Absolutely. Going back to the Bulls for a second, your goaltender for much of that time is a boyhood friend of yours, Darren Pang. And yep. talk a little bit about uh, Darren Pang. We all know him, of course, from his work on TV and radio. Uh, but what was he like? What was your friendship like as a young man? And I assume it continues to t till today. So we played our first. Uh, Darren's a year. He's a born in 64. I'm born in 65. But we played our uh, uh, first five years of uh, you know, AAA hockey in the Ottawa area together. Um, our dads were really good buddies and loved to have a beer while we were playing. Darren was... Um, Tiny, but a phenomenal goalie. But not only that, he was a phenomenal athlete. He was a great tennis player, a nationally ranked lacrosse player. Wow. His only drawback was always going to be his, you know, he never got through 5'4". I mean, he might have said he was 5'5", five, five, but I don't think he ever got past 5'4". <laughs> but a massive heart, massive uh, overachiever, and actually did play some games in the NHL, as, as you're aware. 
but uh, has really, you know, created a unmatched career post hockey and, and all of that he's done. And he's got a great job in St. Louis. I know he's had a great summer celebrating the cup. Um, and he's a respected hockey guy. I'm sure I know him. So Steve Eiserman and he and I all kind of knew each other from the age of eight or nine. It was the same area. Right. Steve and I competed more. We weren't his best friends. Like Darren and Steve are still the best of friends. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that if Darren wanted to, that's how respected he is. He could go work for the Red Wings right now because he's got a lot of information and, and a lot of hockey knowledge. But so, yeah, and, and you know, Darren and I, here we are. We played hockey together in 1972 and had a game of golf this past winter and you know, when he's down here doing some work for the Blues and the Panthers. So I live in, I live in South Florida area. So we still maintain uh, connections. I've got a lot of friendships that have gone and come and gone and broken and done, but Darren and I are still buddies all these years later. Uh, great, great guy, special person. That's great to hear. He certainly seems likable. I, I've never met him, but he certainly seems likable on TV. So it's good to hear that you're still in contact. Looking again back at the, the Bulls experience, your coach there is Larry Mavity, longtime minor league player, played in the World Hockey Association as well. Seems to me, again, I, I know I don't know him. Seems to be like a real old school guy. And I'm thinking of you. I'm I'm the I'm the father of uh, of a 15 year old, and uh, I just took him to a basketball try, tryout last night. And I'm, I'm thinking of you in that situation. You're 15, 16 years old, kid away from home. Um, I was curious what the whole experience was like as far as your coach, Larry Maverick. What type of guy was he? Was he old school or was he accommodating to a young guy like yourself? Um, you know, it just became both. At first, he was uh, was a long-haired 16-year-old kid, which was the furthest thing from what who he was. And he just come from a Tier 2 success and that's his first venture into you know major, major Ontario Hockey League coaching. And remembering back then, all the best players played in either OHL, Quebec, or Western. The, the, the D1 college route was not an option at that point, uh, for for the most part. So you had uh, like I can I recite my first road game in the NHL was against Scott Stevens, Al McGinnis, you know Wendell Young, uh, Brian Bellows, all on the same team in Kitchener. You know, so wow. these were these are all uh, you know thousand game careers, some of them Stanley Cup champs and, and Hall of Famers, all in one junior team. So that's what it was. Uh, for me, to your point, I turned 16 in June of 81. That August, my mom drove me to Belleville, dropped me off, and I lived with a family, worked at hockey school for a week before we started camp the first week of September. Again, uh, it wasn't the best situation. Uh, you know, meals were kind of fending for yourself at 16 and trying to do that and then try to play hockey at a high level, trying to trying to do some high school classes and uh, practice every day and play a 72-game season. So it was a lot of learning curves for me. Um, I got very fortunate in the middle or probably a month or six weeks in, um, they decided to get me, um, on the other side of town from some, some <laughs> girls and, uh, living in, I got my own house. They wanted me to get away from some of the older guys. And, uh, so I ended up getting a family that I ended up living with for that year and for two, for two full years. I'm still somewhat friendly with them. And that's, that was a great relationship, but it was a big part of, you know, I kind of got away and got isolated, got into a nice routine that you know, helped me develop. Um, into the you know, becoming a first-round pick a year and a half later. Yeah, and it's not easy. As you mentioned earlier, it's a rough-and-tumble league, and it's not easy for a young kid, a skilled player, to kind of navigate that, I would imagine. But helping you eventually navigate that would be a teammate that I'm curious about, uh, Marty McSorley. We all know about Marty. I was curious about uh, what he was like as a junior player and um, you know his role in kind of protecting guys like yourself at that, at that age. So, you know, the 
you're a hockey fan, so you know you play the, the the Whalers going back. But do you remember when we started? When I played, there was bench clearing brawls, five on fives happened. There was that was just a penalty. There was no game misconducts. Right. So you know, that was my and then that, I mentioned that first road game. My very first road game in the OHL was a twenty on twenty brawl and warm up, no rest. <laughs> so you were left with you had to grab somebody and you were hoping that it wasn't somebody that if they wanted to could kick the snot out of you. Uh, coming back to Marty, Marty walked on out of junior C, Cayuga, Ontario. He he doesn't believe it. He always thought he became to be uh, thought he was better than he was, which he did make himself into a heck of a hockey player. Right. But that particular year, you know, he was again a year older than me, and I remember he could barely skate. His first the first scrimmage we had, he had four prac four fights. As soon as he went on the ice, he grabbed somebody, fought, 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 and finally, um, Mav, Larry Mavity yells down, Marty. Get off the effing ice. We got a fucking dinner sooner or later. Excuse me for swearing. I went, I mean, literally, I get, I laugh to this day because that's what he did. But Marty, you know, six, 40 games in was playing the power play and he worked his ass off. He didn't really go to school much. He, he was on the ice by himself doing drills, working on his skating. But as far as a guy that had your back as a teammate, um, and I'll come into the next part of that story is, you know, Marty was, you know, I had, we had four Martys on our team. So I was very, very well protected. <laughs> uh, that, and that group, Craig Cox played with us there. Also a tough guy in the NHL. And then the, the guys that never made it into the NHL, but were tough. There was a guy named uh, uh, Al, Ali Buderak and Ray Flaherty. I had all these guys on my team. If I look at my team picture, I mean, they're all beasts of men for our fighting goes. But that, that summer after my first year to come into a Marty, Wayne Gretzky bought into the Belleville Bulls and the ownership group, coached a little game, came to camp before he went to Oilers camp. And that's when he first saw Marty. And lo and behold, once Marty you know, played that year and went to Pittsburgh's training camp, he was quickly acquired by Edmonton. And <laughs> Gretz, wow. Gretz knew that he was uh, one of those guys, you know, put him with Semenko, they had a pretty uh, pretty good tandem of uh, protection out there for him. Right, and you get a chance to play against them quite a bit later on. We'll, we'll get into that later. And I totally forgot that Gretzky had... Uh, bought into the Belleville Bulls, so that, that's very interesting. As you noted, number one pick of the Calgary Flames, and you come up to, to camp, and as was the norm back then, you're only 18 years old, you go back to junior, and you're on your way to about a 200-point season with the Belleville Bulls, and you get recalled, but I was curious about um, your first camp in the, in the National Hockey League. Uh, a lot of veterans, Lanny McDonald, guys of that nature. What was it like? Now you, you've made the adjustment going to junior, but what was it like going to uh, your first camp with the Calgary Flames? Um, well, I had a great camp, and the reason why, and I learned, I didn't have a good camp my second year, um, and so going into all the rules, some some people blame because I was now on a one-way deal, I couldn't be sent back to junior. Um, but the real truth, reality of it was my first year when I went to Calgary. I, I've already gone to Belleville's camp for about a week or ten days. So my conditioning was phenomenal. Um, so I kind of got to jump on the guys in Calgary, uh, a very, very stacked veteran team you alluded to, at, at, especially at Santa Rice with uh, Rice, Ruffle, Plinskakud. I mean, they had so many different players. Because back then, you know, there was no, you know, it wasn't like the roster size. Now, they had good 70 guys at camp, mm-hmm. you know, because you'd, you'd, have, you'd have a farm team in AHL, IHL, all of which were under you know, some sort of a two-way contract. For the, so it was a massive... Uh, uh, team, but I had a really good camp. Uh, it sort of slowed down as it as it wore on, and I had a good feeling. I, I mean, I made it through the to the end, and then they sent me back to Belleville, and I I, I didn't have the first four or five. You know, it took me a couple games to get figure out what was going on, and uh, but then I went on a as you just alluded to about a twenty or fifteen eighteen game tear there. Most of those points were in about fifteen eighteen games, and I was 
20 some kind 25 goal 24 goal I don't know I saw the numbers the other day on something and so I had a good I was going to lead the league in scoring but then they called me up and there again I went in with kind of you know what all right I'll go play and I'll wait till the play I didn't play much the first game but by the third game uh which was in Toronto um I think I got my first assist and I played a, I played like well into the third period and which gave me a ton of confidence and then I think uh, six games later, I had about 10 points. And uh, once you went past eight or nine games, you might know better than me. You couldn't be sent back. Right. So I remember scoring my first goal in about my eighth game, and it was to tie the game in Edmonton. I still have the puck uh, <laughs> with 55 seconds to go. Back when we had a tie, there was no overtime. So we tied it up 5-5. And I got it the, in, the, in, the, in the box score. I got Wayne Gretzky had his 41st. <laughs> I got my first. It was December 23rd. So... Just the numbers. Curry had 30 already. Coffee had a bunch, but it's a pretty cool box score. Um, but that was when uh, you know I stayed up and then had a pretty good protect, productive uh, rookie year. Second year, like I said, I didn't go back. You're talking about your kids. I just didn't have the. I didn't do all the Belleville Bulls training camp conditioning stuff, so I didn't have the best of camps, and it led to a, a slow year. Mm-hmm. Who did you score the first goal against? Was it Grant Fuhrer? Andy Moog. Andy Moog. Moog. Right. You know, one yeah. of the players in the Flames back then. It kind of gets. Uh, somewhat overlooked, but he reminds me in some ways of you. He had that great hand dive, great overall skill. Was Kent Nilsson, and uh, it's curious of your recollections of Kent Nilsson as a hockey player. So again, uh, fortunate break for me. Some Calgary wasn't too too happy with it because they questioned his you know his heart and his his work ethic and whatnot. But Kent was one of the special special people in, in the world that you could ever meet. Number one, I'll give you the greatest compliment that I can give him is um, Wayne Gretzky and I are at his fantasy camp about three three years ago, two and a half years ago, we're having a beer. And I was talking about most skilled players, and he goes, by far, it was Ken Nielsen that he ever saw. So you're talking about a lot of people that Wayne saw over the years. Uh, so we got to practice with Kent. Kent was nice enough to open up. I, you know, they put you up in a hotel. I was 18 when I got called up. He goes, now come stay with me. So I stayed with his, him and his wife at the time for about three weeks. So I got some home-cooked meals and a nice, you know, fresh bed, and it was – so I, I got a massive place in my heart for Kent, and it was a big, big part of the reason. You know, I quit my first Christmas away from home. That we played the 23rd and 26th. I spent it with them. So a massive place in my heart for Kent. And to your point, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of better players, but not many more could dance and fly and skate and shoot and pass with all the all of the uh, the skills that Kent had. Absolutely. Your coach at the time, Badger Bob Johnson, is new to the National Hockey League, a lot of success at the college level, and he's still learning what's going to work at the professional level. Now, my impression at the time was there was, uh, you're kind of a hotshot kid from, you're 18 years old, a, a junior kid, a number one pick. Uh, you know, he had worked with a lot of collegiate players, so he's still adjusting to you and you to him. What was your relationship like with Badger Bob? That's a great, uh, you know, as I look back and then I think you touched on that you were in Pittsburgh at some point where he ended up. So somewhere between his, you know, Calgary experience and there he, he had learned, he, he struggled with talented players, uh, meaning that, you know, you get a guy that you want to go uh, through the roof for you and produce for you, but then every now and then he'd skip you on a shift just because he right. didn't really understand the professional um nature of all of us that had made it that far. We're not used to having just for some reason being embarrassed by skipped on a shift or put off a line. They should be on or missing a power play. And he did, he struggled with Kenta way more than he did me. Um, Kenta was out, you know, about a year or two years. He should have loved Ken Nielsen 
but I think by the time, so to my, to your point is, you know, he, he was used to being able to do stuff to college kids that he didn't really, uh, and that time those college kids were just, they'd give their right arm to play DU and hockey. None of them were going to be much, much, very few of them were going to make professional right. uh, that he coached, you know, in Wisconsin, a few of them maybe made some Olympic teams, but he never been with guys that had been, you know, the best of the best in major a, or their, their groups of you know, pockets of Toronto or Ottawa or Canada, the way we all, most of us had grown up. And that said, probably one of, I still do drills and I coach kids now. He, he was a great, great, uh, we had a great power play. Um, some of the best power plays still in the history of the game. He ended up, uh, uh, he had a great strategy for a lot of stuff. Sometimes he overcoached. Sometimes he didn't manage his bench as well as maybe as he could have, but uh, a massive passionate hockey guy. I'd probably say the most uh, sound coach when it came to fundamentals of you know, mixing in skills with flow and drills mm-hmm. of all the coaches, many coaches that I did have. And I think by the time he, you know, got out of Calgary and then took the job in Pittsburgh, um, he realized, you know, if Mario looks down and he wants to go out, he's going out. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that you open the door when you're best players and, and therefore the best players will go through the, you know, go through the wall for you. But when you, you know, you skip them a little bit or don't do it, you, there's an art to that. And all good coaches in the NHL that are there listen to your podcast know what I'm talking about. Right. It's not as easy. Uh, they time ice time now. Back then, I mean, if Mario played 19 minutes like Sydney does now, he would have went, he would have killed the coach. He played 26 <laughs> minutes. Right. Uh, and that's what he expected and he wanted to. And that's what it took for, you know, that's that's where they got to Wayne with the same way. So that's where the only thing I say when you ask me the question about Bob Johnson. He, I think by the time he got to Pittsburgh, I believe won a cup uh, before he fell ill. Right. Um, but a massive hockey man and a great, you know, great passion for the game. I, I would say, uh, it was, I wish I would have had him in my fifth or sixth year, not my first couple. Cause I, I know I've never been, I mean, I was ready for stuff, but once I'd scored and earned and was producing, it was very hurtful to sometimes be skipped out of shift or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, miss a period because the, they didn't think you could play defense or something. It was just, a, it was not, it wasn't, uh, which happens, you know, but it's, it was very hurtful and, Sometimes, you know, you'd sulk and it would, it would make you have a bad stretch for weeks or weeks at a time and lose even more ice time. So <clears throat> that's the only thing that I think that is a, is a battle when you're, you know, you come up from a college coach to a professional coach. Absolutely. Well, the team is extremely talented and the team is starting to come together. And in 1986, you make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. You have a productive finals yourself, I believe, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe you scored the winner in game one of the finals that year. Uh, talk a little bit. And I, I, I want to mention that because at the end of the season, you get Joey Mullen, a guy that I see a lot here in my work with the Bruins alumni. He lives here in Massachusetts now. Um, he comes onto the team. I think he made a big impact. Your team pulls together. And talk a little bit about that intense experience of getting to the Stanley Cup finals. And again, you had a lot of you had eight goals in just 18 games. Uh, talk a little bit about that whole uh, that whole stretch. Sure, thanks. Yeah, no, the um, that was a culmination of three years and um, of Calgary, and and you brought up something about you know, the Oilers. The Oilers won their first cup in my first year, but that first year as a rookie, we took them to a seven game series in the second round. Um, and I and I say that only because I'm talking to Wayne about a little bit the the barbaric nature, which you know you're in Boston, they probably had with Montreal back in those days when mm-hmm. in the interim or even with Buffalo was that we played each other um, eight times during the regular season, generally two times um, in the exhibition, a home and home. And then in my first year, we played them seven times in the playoffs. So there's <laughs> 17 games. We did that both 
then and they did the same thing in two of my first three years. It's like the old uh, so sixteen I, sixteen NHL, you know. You you playing this? I played forty. I played forty of my games of my first like one hundred and sixty or whatever against the Oilers. Wow. <laughs> when I looked at it, you know, if you think about it, you know, so it's all. It was a really brutal, brutal rivalry. Um, I know that there's other places to say they have one, but it was brutal. And we ended up beating them that year. Um, my ice time was sporadic at times. So I think I it was, was it 18. I think I might've sat out a game or two, even like that's the way Badger did stuff. And I was his leading scorer. So that's why it was very hard for me at that time, especially now that I'm in the third year, I still found a way that once I get into, into the games and a lot of those, you know, eight goals and I think 15 points in 18 games, which was not a lot of ice time, but I still found a way. And, um, it was uh, the, the coolest one. By the time the, as the playoffs rolled around, I had a couple back-to-back two-goal games against St. Louis, which was a total trap series for us after beating the Oilers and having a letdown. Right. Uh, we blew a big blue blue game six, but I'd gotten uh, two two-goal games there, and that pretty much Badger was not left with much of an opportunity but to play me. And I, I can remember the if you're a hockey fan, so you got Patrick Waugh as a rookie, uh, Chris Chelios as a rookie, and Claude Lemieux as a rookie, which as that year went on, sort of set Montreal apart. And they had some veterans, but uh, that, that goal was a shorthanded goal in the third period, and we had a little scouting report on Patrick Watt, that sometimes when you're a left-hand shot coming down, he leaned a little bit to his right. Mm-hmm. So he left that far post open, and I, and I put it off the post and in, and I remember the two defensemen were Chelios and uh, Larry Robinson. I picked their pockets and got a little mini breakaway. So, But that was it. We won that game, and then we blew the second game in overtime, and Went back to the forum and never really got going. You bring up Joey Mullen, one of the great guys of all time, one of the great players of all time. And to give you an idea where Badger had all these different animals, um, right wing in Calgary at that time, even in that 86 playoff, right wing, you got Lane McDonald, you got Hawk and Lube, you got Joey Mullen, you got um, Brett Hall was called up from the farm team. Mm-hmm. All right wingers. Then you had your grinder, you know, your, your, part, your must play players like the Colin Patterson and Tim Hunter. Um, I mean, it was ridiculous the, uh, the amount of bodies we had at certain positions, and for so for everybody to get their adequate ice time, be put on the normal roles was very difficult. So, game three, if you can imagine, this first NHL game was Brett Hull's third game of the Stanley Cup Finals. They you know, scored 50 in Moncton. They brought him up to practice. Badger decided to throw him out there on the first power play, and he took a shot, hit the post. You know, I don't think he played after that, but. That's how crazy the game was, and that's sort of where, you know, I think when I say, coming back to my Bob Johnson, you know, he, he kind of overdid some stuff there. When you got Joey Mullen, Hawk and Lube, you know, guys that have produced. Uh, Mully was, Mullen was an awesome hockey player. Had a great series against his former team in St. Louis. Couldn't be a nicer human being probably to ever play the game. And um, I love playing with him. He was very easy to read. He's always where you want him to be as a, as a sort of playmaking sentiment. And uh, I did get to have some success with him that, that particular year and, and in that playoff. Your time with Calgary comes to an end the following year in a trade from Mike Bullard. You come to the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, a an opportunity for you to play, I guess, more consistently. But it's an interesting time in Pittsburgh because it's just it's it's in the early days of Mario Lemieux is his second third year. Uh, it's pre the Stanley Cup, and there's a lot of turnover, Bob Berry, Pierre Creamer, uh, Gene Ubriaco, Craig Patrick, you had four coaches in four years. Uh, it's a successful time for you. But I wanted to talk first about the uh, the amount of changes. So every every coach, I'm assuming, has different expectations, maybe has different role for you. What type of a challenge was it for you to have four coaches in such a short time period? 
Yeah, it, it still breaks my heart to this day because I put in, I took all of what I had in Calgary and I brought it to Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh had, um, I don't know, I still say probably the greatest hockey player I've ever seen physically, Marilyn Neal. <laughs> but he was having, he, you know, he smoked cigarettes in between periods. And at that time in his, in his second year or third year, he was, it was just a totally different animal when I got there. I actually really liked Bob Berry. They were very old school, but I, I came from Calgary and Badger and all of the conditioning and, and we did everything, you know, new school and this old school kind of guys were, there was no shoulder pads or helmets on during practice. So the first time we skated, I remember, you know, doing laps around the guys. Like, what are you doing? Trying to show off. I said, guys, this is the way you do it. <laughs> I just played those guys up in Edmonton 40 times these last three years. If you think you're going to beat them by dogging it out here, we got no chance. So I was 21. Mario was just turned 21 and um, some great character guys. We did have the, the turnover killed me personally, because as you mentioned, you know, I had a, uh, role in the power play that could never be taken. We had a, the two of the high scoring, I think the two high scoring power plays in the history of the game, 120 and 119 goals back to back years. Uh, great players were at it and Paul Coffey and uh, we got role play. This is when Mark Recchi and Kevin Stevens were breaking in. And I had a nice role on the team as a second centerman. I could sometimes play with Mario, take shifts with Mario. He played, took shifts with me and I had a role in the first power play, but I killed penalties with some coaches, not with others. I took every face off in our defensive zone, but not with others. So it was just, in that time, I was in my peak, you know, this third, fourth, fifth, sixth year scoring and producing. But again, trying to figure out uh, where each coach, you know, especially Pierre Creamer was a disaster. Uh, nice guy. I don't mean that to be a negative or a bad. I'm not on him, but just was nowhere near an NHL coach. And so mm -hmm. we ended up just kind of coaching ourselves. Ubriaco and Tony Esposito was a, was a toxic regime that, that came in and, um, didn't respect, wanted to do stuff the old, you know, the 50s and 60s. We didn't really respect players, uh, which was a shame. Anyway, so it was, uh, we were a good enough team to overcome that, though. We got into our playoffs, but um, then, you know, so it, it, to be honest, it broke my heart. Craig Patrick came in and bought another coach, and, and I got traded shortly thereafter. But I was the normal, I was going to have the most market. Uh, I know I was probably the most uh, expendable player with, with the emergence of, again, a lot of offensive players and, you know, um, it didn't work out for them right away, but it made it, you know, a year later, they missed the playoffs that particular year, but a year later they made that trade deadline with, with you guys in Hartford and, and the, the rest of the city was with his history. But I love Pittsburgh. I came home for 15 years. Um, playing with that group had nothing but, I mean, we had so much fun. We had so much, we pushed each other. We, we, we had a good mix of everything and it just, it just evolved to where they had that dominant team in the early nineties. And I think, you know, everybody says that, there were some people it, it, it was good. that team was going to win. I mean, we should, we could have won in 89. We lost in seven to Philly. Mm -hmm. Kenny Reagan came in and stood on his head, but I think we could have won that year. Uh, Tom Barrasso played great goalie. We had again, just, but that the people on Mario, once Mario was on and knew how good he was after the 87 Canada cup, it was just a matter of time. And he was, you know, I say that if, if you say around a bar, you got Bobby Orr, I think, cause I'm a huge, I'm a huge Bobby Orr fan. I think he's the greatest hockey player. But you can, can't go wrong saying Wayne Gretzky definitely had the greatest career and is the greatest hockey player. But physically, six foot four, six foot five, speed, hand, shot, vision, got mauled for most of his career. Marilyn Neal is the greatest hockey player physically I ever saw. So, you know, they say Gordie Howe, Bobby Hall, you can go Rock Richard. I, I didn't see them enough and I'm, I'm 54, but uh, I would put those three uh, in any era, they would have found a way. Uh, guys like Joey Mullen, Brett Hall would have found a way to score in this league, just like. Sidney Crosby eventually could have played back in our league. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great conversation for a bar, but I don't know that you can argue <laughs> the three that I mentioned. The three that I mentioned, uh, everybody's going to have an opinion on it, but 
I'll take those three and uh, I agree. I agree 100%. In my my own life, my own perspective, I grew up in Boston, so I watched Bobby Orr and incomparable. And uh, when in my career, when I worked at the Hartford Whalers, I worked uh, in the office next to Gordy Howe, and you know his 32 year career, un you know unbelievable. Gretzky, I used to just. I lived in between essentially Boston and Hartford, so every time he was in either one of those cities, I'd pay to watch him play. It was it was incredible to watch him. And uh, finally, when I always watched Lemieux, but particularly when I worked in in Pittsburgh and for the Penguins, watching him forty nights a year, I always felt. And I've said this before, and you know, with, with my conversation with Phil Bork, I always felt like it had the sensation that Mario could do whatever he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And it was a special treat. And for yourself, you got a chance to play against Wayne Gretzky probably as much as anybody in your earlier career and play with Mary Lemieux. So your perspective obviously is very valuable there. Um, in 88-89, you pile up 94 points and Lemieux at his absolute best because that's when he was, he was his healthiest, uh, 199 points that year. You mentioned another player who was a Hockey Hall of Famer and not in recent times, I was at an event um, in Boston where Billy Guerin was speaking and he was talking about him coming when he came to Boston and how Paul Coffey was brewing at, at that time. And Paul kind of took him under his wing and uh, got him acclimated to Boston and playing for the Bruins. What is your memory of Paul Coffey as a teammate? Sure. So Paul was, uh, you know, he came from that, he knew what it took from that, that Edmonton and the Calgary. So we had a play together for the last, we've had a lot of gloves in each other's faces. Um, and I remember, uh, again, a lot of things I did well in my career, a lot of things I didn't, but, uh, the first thing I did when he got there is I gave him a day or two. And I said, Paul, I got a three bedroom townhouse. It's all yours. Come. Cause I remember when I got traded to uh, Pittsburgh, I stayed in this holiday inn in green tree and <laughs> for about three weeks. And, you know, I was right on the edge. I mean, I was miserable. Uh, I didn't know what I was, there was no eating at restaurants. And I just, I finally just went and bought this place uh, in December of 86. And uh, no, actually I forced myself on two guys that had like a five bedroom house. I said, guys, I'm coming to sleep there. Nobody asked me, you know, I don't <laughs> want to tell you who it was. So I'm going to go sleep there until I, and I'm going to go buy this house. And I closed on in December of 86 uh, in Upper St. Clair, you know, Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. But I remember Paul got traded there, whatever year that was, uh, a year later, and I just said, come stay with me. And he still, you know, he and I are still in contact and talk uh, sometimes five days a week, text. And um, so he learned, Paul was, uh, you know, he came from a great environment. That Oiler team was not just Paul and Wayne. Wayne I mean, Mark Messi, arguably the greatest captain of all. You got Glenn Anderson and Lee Fogel and the, the leadership, and Charlie Huddy is still coaching the active, active coach in the NHL. So, Kevin Lowe, Craig McTavish, they had a, you know, Paul's been around a lot of characters, so I can only imagine when Billy Guerin got there that Paul wasn't going to, you know, be Paul Coffey, the standoff Hall of Famer, soon to be. He was a Stanley Cup champion. He would, he would definitely realize that the best way to make a team better is to make everybody feel a part of it and welcome him. And, uh, again, I did that for Paul, and uh, he moved in with me for about, I don't know, three, four, five months. He had a room, and we you know, did a lot of dinners together at the house and uh, didn't necessarily socialize a whole lot, but uh, it was just good to have uh, have had that experience for him when he when he, you know, that, the ability to offer that. It just wasn't in the Pittsburgh mentality at the time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it evolved to where when Mario got Sydney, Sydney lived with Mario. I mean, it's obviously evolved to where that's just the way Pittsburgh was 
the culture of Pittsburgh it was at that time versus the way you know it became. And uh, so yeah, Paul was great. He's a he's another one that'll go down. I was uh, again uh, what do you call it? hot stove barroom talks. I was talking to Wayne Gretzky about it, not name dropping, but two of the two of the highest scoring defensemen. Everybody will always remember that. But two of the best shoot wide passers for a deflection with Paul Coffey and Al McGinnis. And you can look at their stats, but they could pass like big slap shot pass better than any two players. Uh, you know, I think it's a lost art on the new kids, uh, new, the new game, I should say. But um, if, I, if I'm making my point, uh, you know, they were a threat to score when they shot, but they could shoot it, put the puck perfect for a deflection. They knew where there was a lane. McGinnis, especially like nobody, they knew him for a shot. That was an unbelievable, unbelievable passer of the puck. And I got to play with him for three years in Calgary on those power plays as well. So, yeah, it was a, I got to play with some great players, obviously, and that was a big part of uh, great people too. But um, and, and, you know, coming back to something I want to say about Wayne, when you just – I've got – you know, I had Wayne on my junior team. I idolized him. I had pictures on my wall, and then I had to hate him when I went to Calgary. <laughs> nice. and, and you kind of you, – you do. You have to hate him. You know, you, and so then you – uh, reconnect. I played with him in LA for a little bit. Was always a little, but we, since I moved to Florida and his his uh, daughters down here with Dustin Johnson, the last seven eight years we've connected, played some golf, and I went to two of his fantasy camps. But um, it can't be. I don't know in a history of sports a better ambassador for a sport than Wayne has been. Um, if you look at, I look at how he speaks, how he's still gracious, humble, um, how he took uh, went to from Edmonton to LA. Now there's teams, three teams in California, two in Florida one in Phoenix, one in Dallas. None of that happens if it wasn't for Wayne Gretzky. So right. um, I, I think both Bobby and Mary are even more humble and not too good in that role. And I think that's why sometimes people might not think Wayne is as good as he was. But what you said, I watched Wayne play hockey where he just dominated games and obviously won championships and almost carried LA to a championship. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a great, a great conversation to have, but you can't go on with all those three. No, and probably nobody more influential in the history of hockey, perhaps in the history of sports of any player. You could talk about maybe Babe Ruth or something way back when, but in the end, Wayne Gretzky, as you noted, there would not be hockey in so many areas that are thriving right now, if not for for him. You yourself, Dan, are uh, you've always been a, a popular player among your teammates, always very well liked, and your stay in Pittsburgh was highly successful. It had to, I'm just making an assumption, it had to be disappointing or it had to be somewhat hurtful to be traded to Vancouver. How did you hear about that and what was your reaction to that that trade? Well, I was heartbroken. Um, to, your, to your point, I was, in, I was in New York City and I think it was early January. And we had a game that night and I was out for a walk and then I got back to the hotel room and the, the light was blinking. And that's when I got told that I was traded to Vancouver and... So you're going to say I was popular with teammates, but I was not going to be too popular in Vancouver very long because I didn't have the best attitude out there for my stay. It's probably one of my biggest regrets. Uh, you know, they made me a captain. I got a nice, pretty good deal at the time that summer. You know, play, had a good player in Trevor Linden, but I just had, a, again, that old uh, Smythe Division feeling about what the league looked upon in Vancouver as, um, which was just not a not the place to be. You know, right. and we beat them in Calgary. We beat them my first year in the first round, played them eight times you know, my first three years. So I got 25, six, seven, 30 games under my belt against them as well. <laughs> so it was, uh, but I was, you know, 25 and I, I called Pittsburgh home, spent summers there. Um, loved it. Loved being a part of that group and team. And I sort of tried to embrace it. I went and had a really good camp and then I, the travel, my attitude, everything just was horrendous. And it's one of my biggest regrets because uh, I, I should have been much more professional about it. And, and, you know, come March that year, I got traded to uh, St. Louis 
And it was sort of a, uh, you know, you answer, I had a, some productive parts of the time when I went from Pittsburgh to Vancouver, but, you know, my, my love of the whole game and the whole business and the process, you know, I didn't train as hard that following summer and consequently led to about another poor year. So that's, yeah, it was, uh, it was very hard because I sort of had this dream of playing in the NHL and being a part of a good group and a good team. And I, and I sort of had that in Pittsburgh and uh, it just was, you know, a little bit of a, a breaking of the dream that you had, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Calgary was Calgary was Calgary. Pittsburgh was the dream. It was a great group of guys got to play a lot of hockey played, could trust that I was going to get ice time had a nice role. Uh, so yeah, it was and a good, and a good hockey team that was going to go somewhere and make the playoffs. So it was, it was disappointing. Obviously you're playing for several teams in a short amount of time. And I, that obviously has to take some of the, of the love out of the game, uh, with a lot of transition. Another thing's happening too, uh, in that time period, Dan, and that is the, real advent of a lot of clutch and grab and interference and you know very tough for a, a skilled player to get from point a to point b i mean it was just it was sometimes it really almost ruined the game and it was frustrating to watch a lot of times was that a factor for you when you look back at it i know it was a factor for mario and i remember watching him in 96 97 his last full year of his first tour and saying to myself it was a game against calgary and uh, I remember him just getting like just so upset, slamming his stick down and storming off the ice. Uh, Kerry Frazier was a referee or something. Something wasn't getting called. But my my point of all that is, it was it like it was for a fan to watch it. It was. Did you find yourself the game slowing down for skilled players like yourself? No, you're no, you. I mean, you've said a lot of things that are very impressive in this this interview. So I I, was, I appreciate that. Uh, no question, the game the game got to a really bad spot. Um, I think it was a little bit of Kevin Constantine in San Jose, an expansion team, and Roger Nielsen down here in Florida. They, I mean, they literally didn't forecheck. And as soon as you got in the neutral zone, they had a stick on your hip, and they just they, I called it water ski. You know, they just water skied <laughs> behind it, right. and um, it just took the flow of the game. The, you know, the game in the '80s, early '90s was, as I always said, barbaric, but it had some flow to it. And then when expansion came in, they just decided, all right, we'll just sit back and we'll clutch and we'll keep these scale. And they let them do it. And for a guy like me that always gave up, I was, you know, 5'11", 175 most of my career. So I'm already giving up about two inches and, and 25 pounds per guy. I couldn't get away from anybody as they got quicker and then they were allowed to maul and grab. You just mm-hmm. couldn't get, you couldn't get separation and you couldn't find space was becoming even more hard to find. But, you know, once you even had to step on somebody, they could stick their stick out or, they had that corkscrew. A lot of the defensemen that couldn't skate, they started putting their stick between your leg as you were coming down at them, and they corkscrewed you. Right. So it was just a, it was a bad stretch in there. Uh, the mid '90s, it came into the game, no question, and, and you know, very good point by you. It wasn't just Mario, though. It was, it was everybody. It took its toll on so many guys that you can look at. They had, you know, skilled players, especially. Uh, some guys survived it. Don't get me wrong, but it was, it was not a good look, and it, and it took the game into the early 2000s, I think, to realize. Um, that they were gonna, they were gonna go nowhere with the way the game, not go nowhere, but they weren't gonna be able to branch out um, into the into the modern world with the way the game was being you know, played. At the time. Right. It was kind of the dark ages of hockey. Even for myself as a fan, I really tuned out a lot of it. And over the past few years, as you noted, uh, the, the, especially since that last lockout thing, the game is kind of reminiscent of the game I used to really enjoy watching with, as you said, it's not as barbaric, but there is 
uh, a lot of flow to be sure. Now, that last season, you returned uh, brief, briefly to Pittsburgh, but I'm curious about your thought process because you have something going on that's a little different than most, and that is you have a, a second career uh, that can be substantially lucrative on the Celebrity Golf Tour, and you didn't need to hang on or necessarily go to Europe or whatever you may have done at that point. Did that, does that impact your decision to retire from hockey? I'm assuming it does, an obvious question, but where you have a very lucrative skill and uh, career opportunity in golf at the end of your hockey career. Yeah, it probably wasn't the best perspective or to have, but to be honest with you, so like everybody, I didn't get traded. I think I got traded three, four times. I, I ended up having signing for like 500 grand, which was just under... Uh, as long as you're under the average, you could become a free agent. I was just signed one year deal. So I signed, you know, one year deal, Philly, one year deal, Ottawa, a two year deal in Ottawa that that became a Philly's deal. And I did a one year deal in LA and then did a two year deal with Pittsburgh again, keeping under that. So I could, I had the flexibility if something thought I thought was great. Well, the, uh, the opportunity after a pretty good run in Philly, they decided to, uh, you know, they weren't going to, they gave me the option. Well, I can't remember, whatever. I bought me out or I had a year left. Mm-hmm. Took out a little buyout, and then I signed with Pittsburgh that summer. So I was extremely excited. At the same time, I was about four years into that Lake Tahoe tournament, which kind of gave me maybe some false hopes that I had a ability to play golf professionally, like a PJ Tour player. And I was pretty close, but you know, I was—I'm uh, not one of those guys who can tell you. I, I know that I was I, the way I did it. I was going to have to stop everything and, and just go at it. But that's not the way it was back then, and, and I wasn't good enough to play a tour golf, but. To your point, uh, I was making 500 at hockey, and I could make these celebrity tournaments popped up, and a couple other things. I could make myself anywhere from 150 to 300 grand, and play the sport I love 365 days a year. So, yeah, my training in the summers tailed off a little bit, and then the start to that year with Pittsburgh was a disaster. And, and um, I said, you know, let's, let's go play some golf. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, they, you know, the clutching and grabbing, it was brutal. And then I, I wanted to play in Pittsburgh so bad again. I had a house at Nevillewood. I loved it there. But they, you know, Jaeger, Lemieux, Francis, it was just tough to find a role for the, the five, six, seven forwards, not in that first couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, I, and it, it, that, that team struggled that for a little while as well, as you know, that, that late 90s. And then they came in with a whole other Nedbed and Straka, and I, I think. But to your point, yeah, I, I played some golf and I've had some good years. I ended up playing Tahoe for 23 years. I won that five times. I went to you know, Q school. I played in a couple of Nike events the summer of 97. The Nike Tour at the time, which is now Corn Ferry or whatever you call it, and uh, and I, you know, I got to do something I loved, and then you know, post 9/11, that that wasn't really there was only one or two tournaments, so it wasn't enough to justify uh, doing golf only. So uh, it was it was always a trick box. You know, I love golf mm-hmm. that much that, and I was decent enough that I should I could have maybe made it if if I didn't have hockey. But I wish I. I know one thing, if the contract sizes are what they are today, I would never, it would never have <laughs> entered my mind to right. try to play. Uh, and I guess I was always going to be, I could be a top 30 or 40 player in the league. So I was always going to make the, what these guys make now. And what I, if you look at my stats in those key years, it's golf in the summer would have been just that golf in the summer. Right, exactly. So, no, that's you know, understandable. But, uh, I, I did have one last hockey question to ask you, and that was, uh, we're just about to wrap up here. But I had a question about, you had two stops in Ottawa, and uh, one of which, Pierre Maguire, I was curious, Rick Bonus, first of all, was coach of, of Ottawa at that time. I always felt he was highly underrated, but I was, he also had Pierre Maguire in there as well. Did you play with Pierre? What are your memories of him as a coach, if indeed he was a coach there when you were there? Oh, God. So, yeah, 
Rick was there. I did two stints. I came back uh, after a contract thing, whatever, and, and played a little bit with Ottawa and then screwed around. You know, Randy, a guy named Randy Sexton screwed me around. So I went to LA for that year. And then that summer, since free agency opened up again, they I signed a two-year deal in Ottawa and I was pumped because I think to your point, uh, Rick is a, Rick was a great coach and uh, had a great way with me. Uh, could look at me one way and I knew I got the message, but he also trusted that, you know, he knew that I was going to play hard and you know play as a skill player, but play hard enough that, he would he would tolerate and, and make sure I got my ice time and uh, and I was a big I couldn't wait to go back and have a nice if not finish my career there you know the summer of '95 I believe '95 '96 and uh, I broke my hand I just got I had a six point game a hat trick and I don't know maybe the seventh or eighth game actually in Hartford I broke my hand I came back uh, he was fired in that stretch he didn't have me he didn't have Alex Yash Alex Yashin as a contract holdout they fired him and Elaine Vino. And two guys still coaching, what's this, 24 years later, I think, in the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that speaks to uh, the kind of coaches they were, the longevity they've had. And Elaine got head jobs at a few spots. I believe he's still, he's still coaching. And, and Rick, I believe, was, is, is, was an assistant in Tampa and is still, is still in the league. Um, and then that they replaced him, if you can imagine, when you talk about, and I get disappointed when I talk to a guy named Randy Allison who I think coached maybe 15, he can pull it up, 15, 20 games. He hired Pierre McGuire as an assistant. And I knew of all the guys from Pittsburgh that had told me about him. Uh, and, and I mean, maybe the most biggest two-faced, you know, coach, laugh at you, smile at you, and then go tell her, how oh, this Quinn sucks. He's not going to do this. Maybe that's, that's what he does. And uh, So if he's a friend of yours, I apologize, but that's, uh, <laughs> that was it. I only, I was only there a little bit and that's, I could see it right away, and then I was I was gone, and then I went to Philly. I got lucky to get to go play with some great players. I had a great time with that group, Leclerc and Mindros. Um, got beat by the clutch and grab Panthers uh, in the playoffs, which, but yeah, it was fun. I ended up, it ended up working out, but I was really pumped to play for Rick, and and then uh, he got fired. I think I only got to play ten or eleven games, and then I broke my hand, and and they got fired him while I was in a cast. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's all. Yeah, it was a, you're, you're very point on though. I mean, Rick was a great coach. He's a good coach. And, and I think any guy that's coached back in that era and through the clutch and grab and then coached in this modern era has obviously got some, some flexibility and, and adapt, adapt, uh, adaptability to be still working in the game is phenomenal. And Lane Vino, same thing. Because right, right. the game has changed. The analytics component, the conditioning, the chefs in the locker room, <laughs> uh, the charter flights. All the stuff that this game's taken on these last 25 years takes a lot of different uh, scenarios to coach. But I also, I, I'm a stake in my era. I think I'm, I like the game now because I see Rick Tockett having success and Craig DeRuby having success. You know, guys from our era, you got to tip their hat. A little bit of the mix, right? The modern and the old. Right. And, and, you know, so the, the guys are having success in the league. Um, it seems, you know, the, the Boston, you know, you got Bruce Cassidy, you know, you're, you're my town in Ottawa is a year younger than me, plays my brother in the PN Ontario, mm-hmm. coaching the Bruins, you know, so I loved it. I was torn. I was, you know, I just love seeing guys, two guys from my era in the Stanley Cup finals coaching teams. So it's uh, somewhere in there, there's a, a message to us all, isn't there? Absolutely. <laughs> it's a very, very good point. And, you know, again, to be able to adapt from uh, an older school to the new school today and then stay and succeed certainly says a lot. And, and for yourself, obviously, a lot of success in a number of different areas. And Dan, I was just curious uh, you know, for the fans, uh, what's uh, what's Dan Quinn doing? I know you're in southern Florida and you've got the awesome family. Uh, what's uh, what's taking uh, your, your attention uh, these days? Um, well, I've got a bunch of different projects, um, kind of like a lot of people have had a lot of these CBD uh, opportunities. So I've got a two or three of those ongoing that I'm 
Uh, I coach uh, last two summer, two years. I've done a spring hockey program, so I'm gonna. I was just down at the rink today, put some stuff on that. Um, I've got some friends, uh, former Patriot, a former Steeler, Josh Miller, who punted, just moved down, and he's got a great, uh, a great sport, uh, gel sport. It's called. They have a great training aid that's in 41 or 42 of the D1 schools. They just relocated to, to Jupiter, and I'm going to get involved with them not only as an ambassador, but they have different verticals, a golf product, an apparel product, and a lacrosse component. Anything that's a tube, it's a, it's a training aid. But, I mean, I'm not – I was there – I had breakfast or lunch with them two weeks ago, and Connor McDavid texted them, can you fill my stick up? So they got a really uh, – you know, the Bruins, I think, they're in Boston University. They're, they're the real deal, and they got a really cool, cool component, so I'm going to get involved with them a little bit further. And, and, um, and I do a little bit of consulting. So nothing that I can say 100%. I'm not a doctor or lawyer, but I'm doing enough to keep me busy. <laughs> And That's, there's one thing I've learned uh, in retirement, you know, you can only play so many NASA's. So um, uh, <laughs> I'm going to play, uh, I'm going to work until I don't work anymore. I got to have something to do. Absolutely. We're glad to hear that. And we're really glad to talk to you today, Dan. It was a, a fun interview with a lot of uh, good information. Thanks so much for spending time with us. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. My pleasure. Anytime. Have a Thanks, great Dan. day. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. Just a reminder to please consider giving the show a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. These ratings and reviews help us become a lot more visible and make the show more accessible to hockey fans everywhere. I personally read all the reviews and greatly appreciate them all. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, you can talk to contact us through our website at prohockeyalumni.org or be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Pro Hockey Alumni. Thanks for listening.